0: Hi, podcast listeners. Today's podcast is distinct in that we added it in later after we had already established our season. This is an interview that I had with Mark Tooley, who serves as the president of the Institute for Religion and Democracy. That is one of many groups that has spoken into renewal in the United Methodist Church. On March 1st, the news came out that the Wesleyan Covenant Association will become the global Methodist church. This is is an exciting day for all of my friends who've been involved in United Methodist renewal for many years. I have my concerns that the Salvation Army could be poised for a similar trajectory as the United Methodist Church. And it's in that spirit and in light of that history that I interviewed Mark Tooley. I hope that this conversation will serve as a helpful and, and pastoral warning for the theology of the Salvation Army and the way we live that theology out, particularly as we understand ourselves as a global movement and all of the challenges that come with that. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in the United Methodist Church who I believe can help us, and I think you'll find this conversation with Mark Tooley helpful along those lines. God bless you.
1: Hello and welcome to Captain's Corner. We'd like to take a moment to thank you, our listeners, for making this podcast such a success. We have a great lineup of guests for you to enjoy this season. So we ask you to share this podcast on your social media, with your friends and family, and of course, give us a like and leave a review. Hope you guys enjoy the season. This season is sponsored by Summit Marketing, Sure Construction, and WPO Development. Thank you for being such great supporters of Captain's Corner.
0: Welcome to Captain's Corner. Captain Andy Miller coming to you from Tampa, Florida. And I'm excited today to have on somebody I've admired for a long time, who is the president of the Institute for Religion and Democracy, Mr. Mark Tooley. Mark, welcome to Captain's Corner.
2: Thank you, Captain. It's good to be aboard your ship.
0: (laughs) I always wonder how people respond to that statement. Some people say, hey, I don't want to be cornered. Uh, But the ship analogy, I like that one. Well, Mark, I've I've been following your writing and the work that comes from the Institute for Religion and Democracy for a while, and it's been a great benefit to me. I, I remember kind of when at the moment I found your resources, it was like kind of like the political theology that I've been looking for for a long time. But there's also a component to your work that the main reason I want to get on with you is to talk about the way that you and your, your group are influencing the United Methodist Church, and I'm hopeful of Salvation Army. Can learn from that. But before before we get into the United Methodist areas, tell us a little about the, yourself and the, the IRD and what it is so that uh, our Salvationist audience can understand that. Thank you.
2: Yes, uh, the IRD Institute on Religion and Democracy will be celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. We're a, an ecumenical Christian think tank, including mainline Protestants, Evangelicals, Catholics, and others. Uh, We are Christian, so our mission statement uh, affirms uh, Christ uh, is Lord, and uh, we focus on the uh, fidelity of the church's social and political witness in society. So how does the church speak politically? When the IOD was founded in the Cold War in 1981, much at least of the mainline church and parts of the Catholic Church, for example, were very enmeshed in liberation theology, which uh, led them to support uh, Marxist revolutionary movements around the world, which the founders of the IRD found very disturbing. Right. So the IRD was created to make the Christian case for democracy, human rights, and religious freedom for all people.
0: And who would have thought 40 years later we'd have to come back and be dealing with some of these same issues again? I mean, you... Y- Yeah, go ahead.
2: Yes, the same issues keep regurgitating. And once again, we have to make the case for democracy, human rights, and religious
0: freedom for all people. So tell me about the founders of um, IRD. I think there's some significant movers and shakers within Christendom.
2: Carl Henry, who was the the great uh, evangelical theologian of the last half of the 20th century and the founding editor of Christianity magazine, was among our founding board members, uh, Richard Newhouse, the founding editor later of First Things magazine, uh, originally a Lutheran pastor, later a Catholic priest, Michael Novak, uh, the well-known Catholic uh, ethicist and uh, thinker, George Weigel, who went on to become the official biographer of Pope John Paul II. So those are uh, some of our founders.
0: So it's truly this ecumenical movement and trying to move against the currents of Marxism that was making its way really prominent in that time. And, and unfortunately, like those things, as I said earlier, are expressing themselves again. You also have um, a magazine, too, Providence Magazine, um, that's a more of a, um, an internationally focused journal, Right.
2: Yes, we founded Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy in 2015 to create a community of Christian thought examining issues of uh, state ca- statecraft, right. war and peace, and international relations, and founded somewhat in the tradition of Reinhold Niebuhr, the mid-20th century Protestant thinker, a uh, crafter of the school of thought known as Christian Realism, right? who founded his own magazine in 1941 called Christianity in Crisis that we somewhat model ourselves after it was created uh, shortly before Pearl Harbor to, again, make the case for, uh, uh, well, to make the case against the then prevalent uh, pacifism and isolationism in America's churches in the lead up to
0: World War II. And so those those same subjects make their way through, like uh, thought, like um, uh, John Howard Yoder, Stanley Harrawas, these sort of folks. So I often I, that was actually what how you came to help me, um, and I never even heard the term all through seminary and uh, doctoral work, even the term statecraft. I'm sorry to say, you introduced it to me, and, and the, through your writings, and it helped me think through like another perspective. It's just so popular within the academy to. Put those ideas forward, particularly the theological academy, to have a response to this uh, pacifism, isolationism, and what, what, what? How do you define statecraft? What is that?
2: Well, uh, statecraft is basically uh, how do we do politics and understand government domestically and internationally. So, looking at it uh, through a theological prism, basically, it's a political theology. What does God ordain government to do, and how do we live that out?
0: And, and you being based in Washington, D.C., um, I often find you being quoted in um, like the Washington Post, various other uh, sources that come out there. And then you also have a different side, too, um, to the IRD, in that I find that you are often the person who's representing uh, Wesleyanism, uh, now, that's not necessarily a part of the IRD. It's a, a segment of the IRD, but even to the general Christian community, the Christian conversation that goes on, uh, when they look for a Wesleyan voice, a lot of times I see Mark Tooley listed uh, when they're wanting to find out what's happening in the Methodist Church or what what's happening with a Wesleyan theology as a whole. How, is is that a part of your role with the IRD? Um, t- talk to me about that and how that blends together.
2: I first joined the IRD staff in 1994 to create its, United Methodist program, IRD had then had several denominational programs in the 1990s as the mainline denominations were um, uh, segmenting themselves into uh, opposing forces, chiefly over sexuality issues. And there were huge battles over whether those denominations, the mainline Protestants would stick with the traditional perspective or go with a liberal perspective. And sadly, in almost every case, the liberal perspective prevailed except among the United Methodists because its membership is global and the growing African church kept the United Methodist Church's official teachings on marriage and sexuality traditional.
0: Mm-hmm. And that might be a good a good segue. Uh, I want to just describe a little bit to you, and I'd love for you to share the experience that you've you know, work through as uh, in your role and then the previous role that you had at the IRD, but with a, you know, like a significant spokesperson within Methodism, along with a few other groups that represent the, the orthodox message or, or the orthodox expression of United Methodism, Um but but to set that up, I want to just describe a little bit of where the Salvation Army is. And I, I believe that we're at a critical junction within the life of Salvation Army theology. My, some of my colleagues might not necessarily agree. Um, and because my in-laws are involved in United Methodist renewal, my uh, father-in-law led the Clergy delegation to General Conference several times from the South Georgia Conference, and um, so I'm just a, just going home for breaks and th- things with my wife's family. I've learned about what's going on in the Methodist Church. Um, I see parallels to the Salvation Army. So the Salvation Army is still like every every person who joins the Salvation Army Church signs articles of faith that declares that they'll uphold the sanctity of marriage and family life, that the scriptures of the Old New Testament are given by inspiration of God, and they alone constitute the divine rule of Christian faith and practice. While that's there and clearly articulated, um, there is a move, some within the United States, but other Western countries, particularly uh, in Europe, uh, that have moved towards embracing the LGBT agenda. And that's such that um, it doesn't come across saying, we need everybody to change their mind right now, and we all need to get on on board. But there's this w- expression that seems to say, well, there's a conservative view, and then there's a liberal view, and since we're all Christians, we just need to learn to get along. And I, I think that that's a dangerous thought because it, it, it doesn't depend upon the relevatory nature of the gospel and the Christian message. So I'm I'm afraid that we are on a similar trajectory of the United Methodist Church. So could you just fill me fill us in? I know that this could take hours, but on what's happened in the United Methodist Church over the last several years wh- regarding human sexuality? That's yes,
2: hopefully the Salvation Army will not follow the same course of the United Methodist Church, which was the course of all the historic uh, mainline Protestant denominations in America whose seminaries liberalized theologically early in the 20th century so that by the 1960s, the Orthodox voices were at least among the clergy and the decided uh, minority. The uh, sexuality debates emerged in the mainline churches uh, in the late 1960s and were first officially debated by the governing body of the United Methodist Church in 1972. Mm -hmm. And uh, resulting from that initial debate, the United Methodist Church for the first time felt obligated to specifically state its disapproval of homosexual practice and affirming of sex only within male female marriage. Right. So every four right. years after that 1972 convention, that same debate was rehashed and the Orthodox side always prevailed. But if the United Methodist Church, like the other mainline denominations, had remained a predominant US body, The liberal side would have easily prevailed years ago it was only because our membership is global and nearly half our membership if not half or more at this point is in africa where the church is conservative Mm -hmm. we would be in the same place of the episcopal church the presbyterian church usa the evangelical movement church in america the united church of christ and the christian church disciples of christ
0: right and, and so this, this has been growing for a long time. Like you said, it kind of started in the seminaries and then it expressed itself here. And, you know, one of the interesting things for the Salvation Army is that our governing body yeah, isn't, uh, it's one body. I mean, literally one body, one person, <laughs> right. similar to, now there's a consultative approach to leadership. It's not as autocratic as it was under William Booth and Bramwell Booth, but we are, um, we do put all, of, uh, decision-making authority does come to the general of the Salvation Army, and the generals of the Salvation Army have held to orthodox theology, and none, no general that I know of has ever like proposed like a change in this regard. Um, at the same time, there is this uh, growing acceptance, and uh, whole Salvation Army churches, maybe even a majority of uh, territories sometimes, and that's like generally a country or two comes together to form a, a Salvation Army territory, um, are starting to embrace... Uh, I would just call it an un- unorthodox view about the human body and human sexuality. Um, w- about 20 years ago, or a little less than 20 years ago, there was a key moment I heard of um, in 2004 when Dr. Bill Henson shared after one of these governing bodies that met their general conference. Um, he, he called for an amicable separation. Um, was, that, was that hasty, premature? How was that handled when he said that? And what was he right at that point?
2: It was deemed a premature, and the governing convention overwhelmingly rejected the suggestion, and he retracted it himself, okay. but of course, that was uh, 17 years ago, so the uh, issue had not yet matured to the point where it could be accepted by a majority of the church, but we are in that position now. The church would have divided last year without the pandemic, but the governing convention was postponed till. Like this year, now we just learned today right. the convention because the pandemic has been postponed till 2022, but there is a proposal on the table that the various caucus groups, conservative and liberal, agreed to in uh, late 2019, called the protocol, which would divide the church and essentially each congregation would have the choice uh, of between the liberal denomination, a new Conservative denomination, and very likely an additional radical left denomination.
0: Interesting. I want to get to that in a second because, like, the big question is like, rather or not, like, well, isn't it unchristian to divide, and why should we be doing this? But do you think if um, seventeen years ago, when Bill Henson said that, um, okay, if they okay, people think it's rash to um, separate? What could have been done at that point, and I wonder if it's connect, uh, like if discipline is a part of the uh, the answer, but maybe not. I uh, could could the United Methodist Church have stayed united, and and what would that have been? What would it have taken to do that?
2: Well, with the African delegates and a minority of American delegates the, uh, the orthodox teachings of sexuality were reaffirmed at a special convention called in 2019, specifically for the purpose of addressing the church's position on Marriage and sex. And obviously, the US bishops and other liberals hoped this convention, under a lot of pressure, would cave in and uh, overturn the Orthodox teaching. And they were quite shocked when it instead strengthened the mechanisms for enforcement for the church's teachings on sexuality. But the margins were only 5347. So the church is very divided, and a majority of the u.s church at least the clergy and overwhelmingly the bishops and the church bureaucrats are on the liberal side Mm. so it was an untenable situation the church's teachings were orthodox but a majority of the uh, institutions in the u.s church are heterodox so i think it was deemed that only a separation was uh, a
0: viable option right could it have been um, years ago when these questions started to come up, even back in the 70s and 80s? Is enforcement—I mean, that's that's the hard thing. Is enforcement what, what's missing? Is that, um, like, we, we say this is what we believe, but actually going to um, a church that would move against the church's teaching and actually removing or are, are causing an opportunity to separate on that local level, that didn't seem to happen in the United Methodist Church. Would that have— helped if that would have happened. Uh, I guess it's a what if, um, if we had talked 30 years ago or so, but is that what was missing?
2: Well, 30 years ago, the church's teachings on sexuality were largely enforced, and uh, the prohibitions on same-sex marriage and ordination of persons sexually active outside of marriage were largely enforced, except in the more liberal regions, where there was kind of a, a don't ask, don't tell situation. But the ultimate problem was not abiding by the official teachings of marriage. The ultimate problem was uh, many, uh, if not a majority of the U S clergy are not Orthodox theologically. The seminaries are not uh, by and large Orthodox theologically. And the church had been declining since the 1960s because uh, of the lack of faithful teaching, the lack of commitment, to, or if not indifference to evangelism. And so the sexuality was just one fruit of the, uh, ultimate problem which was a rejection of orthodox teaching
0: right so so it's not just this like so we're not just picking on the sexuality discussion like this is this is it has to do with revelation with how god has revealed himself through the scriptures Uh, also has to do probably it wouldn't be a surprise then in some of the churches that are unorthodox to walk in and find a denial of the dual natures of Christ or um, the de- denial of the resurrection. I'm not saying that everybody falls in that category, but is that consistent with what you know of like what's happening in the Methodist church is not just this one issue that there's several other um, issues related to Christian theology that are inconsistent with Orthodox teaching.
2: Well, that's correct. And interestingly, the uh, high point for heterodoxy could arguably have been the 1960s. There was one poll hmm. in 1960 showing a, Half or more of the Methodist clergy do not believe in the bodily bodily resurrection or the virgin birth of uh, Jesus. That was over 50 years ago. Oddly, probably those numbers are better now. I think the old modernism receded and uh, younger, even liberal clergy and seminarians are closer to orthodoxy. And many, probably most are fine with the Apostles' Creed, And post-modernity, they're much more accepting of the miraculous than they would have been under modernity, but they are overwhelmingly liberal on sexuality and uh, would dispute the need for, in many cases, a personal conversion or or probably strongly uh, universalist. And so uh, from that perspective, there's no uh, imperative for evangelism or church growth.
0: So in that sense, kind of like the, the David Bebbington model of what makes up historically evangelicalism of a biblicism, like uh, conversionism, social action, um, these type of things just wouldn't be embraced. And so that's why often this falls into a similar camp of evangelical liberal. Like we, we, fought, we get those categories, unfortunately, like, and sometimes that's, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad to have those markers. Um, i uh Challenge comes then is, so you are part of the group, am I correct, that developed the protocol where you and um, people from the WCA, um, were you a part of that, those conversations? Uh, Yes, I was
2: part of the initial group, and then it it was windowed down to a smaller group uh, in the process
0: through which we were uh, consulted. So here's my, even if you weren't involved with those details, this is obviously a very sad moment. (laughs) But yet, it, there is a hopefulness to this too. And following some of the the writings and the things that like people like Tim Tennant are saying, and others uh, who are part of the uh, Wesleyan Covenant Association, um, and then what's it? What's good? The Good News Organization. Like I'm, I'm interested to hear you kind of like talk about the, both those sides of the coin—the kind of the the sad point that we're at, but also what this means for. Um, the future, and, and how this there might be a glimmer of hope coming from this.
2: Well, the sad part is, as you say, a schism of the church, and uh, sadly, probably thousands of congregations will be so divided that they will never recover, and I'm sure yeah. hundreds of thousands will leave Methodism altogether during this separation process, so we should not underestimate uh, the destructive impact of this schism, But uh, the happier side is that uh, the battles will mostly come to an end and that uh, both sides will be able to move on based on their convictions. And Orthodox Methodists will finally be able to organize around historic Wesleyan theology and have uh, seminaries that are faithful to those principles and uh, can go to work uh, replanting. Historic Wesleyan beliefs around the country, where uh, those uh, beliefs, uh, as represented local churches, have largely died off, especially in the West Coast, the Northeast, the big cities, the college campuses, where liberalism right. killed off Methodism, and now we'll have an opportunity to replant and rebuild.
0: Amen. And it's interesting. You you mentioned something about this a little bit earlier that it's. Um, that the liberal churches are often dying off. And I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm sure there are exceptions to that. And I'm sure it's not just a guarantee that evangelical Orthodox churches are growing. Um but the even even the seminaries, uh can you talk a little bit about that? Um and the where where the where spring is coming from, so to speak, in Methodism?
2: You no know, Methodism has uh thirteen official seminaries, uh eleven uh, twelve of which would be Liberal, uh, one of which uh, the the thirteenth uh, miraculously uh, shifted from liberal to uh, orthodox friendly, ten or fifteen years ago. But uh, the the seminary that graduates the most United Methodist seminarians is not one of our official seminaries. It's Asbury Seminary in Central Kentucky. Uh, so I think about eighteen percent of all of our seminarians come from Asbury, which is Wesleyan, theologically evangelical, not aligned uh, explicitly with any denomination. So that has helped to sustain the evangelical uh, subculture within the American part of the
0: United Methodist Church. All right. So we, um, most people who are listening to this will know, um, the Salvation Army, actually more than 500 Salvation Army officers have come through Asbury University, far less through Asbury Seminary, but my wife and I both went through both those institutions. And, um, it also has a really key role in influencing the, the Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. Both, both institutions do too. So, um, it's certainly something that God has used. Now, this, the, you, the, within Methodism at the, one of the, for one of the last general conferences or one of the special called conference, I know there was a, a plan presented that sounds a lot what my friends from Europe are suggesting. Not all of them, of course, but some are suggesting something that sounds a lot like what uh, Pastor Adam Hamilton, who's at a large, more progressive church in Kansas, suggests. what's called the One Church Plan. And uh, uh, could you tell us what that is and, and why, um, and rather it would, would have worked or not?
2: When the United Methodist Church had its special 2019 general conference focused exclusively on sexuality, the liberal institutionalists heavily promoted this so-called one-church plan, which essentially would have allowed everyone to make their own choices on sexuality. So local congregation could recognize same-sex marriages or not, or have clergy who conducted those same-sex marriages or not, or have clergy who were actively uh, uh, sexual outside of male-female marriage or not. So it would have wow. decentralized the teaching. And, uh, but it, and it's important to remember that that's how all of the other liberalizing mainline denominations, that was how they first began. It wasn't uh, a across-the-board imposition of same-sex marriage. It all began with a uh, local option.
0: Wow. So what you just mentioned was um – you said this happened every other denomination. So earlier, you listed all these mainline denominations that have made this move in the United States. You're saying that they all started that way,
2: basically, like they by all just started having local options. Way,
0: yes. and they ended up being across the board um, promoting. Uh, like, like basically, when you say uh, it's kind of like a, like a law of non-contradictions, right? Uh, here, like every you can believe what you want to believe, but when you do that, you end up. Uh, Pushing out because, like, the, the, the conservative opinion is this is the view, view of the human body. This is the way that God has prescribed human sexual rela- relationships to be lived out. Uh, it's, there's not in, um, a both and that goes with that. I mean, there there is gray areas within how we minister to people and how we serve people and welcome all people. And we actually just had on the podcast uh, Dr. Janet Dean, who's from Asbury University, who talked about her work in um, on college campuses, and so so like we're fully supportive of that. Like, and we're we're fully interested in conversation to work through this. And as people have opinions, we don't want to like. Say, we're not interested in the conversation. But at the same time, like there comes a point where there is a dividing line. And it sounds to me like what happened in the United Methodist Church and these other mainline denominations is at the point they said it's uh, both and, that might have been the dividing line.
2: Well, that's right. And so, as you know, the traditionalists believe the historic teaching of the church uh, that marriage is male and female. Uh, this is rooted in the scriptures and has been reaffirmed reaffir- by every branch of Christianity across 2,000 years. So this is not a point of uh, compromise. But And liberals on the other side would say that full affirmation of LGBTQIA++ identities is not a point of compromise. It's the civil rights issue of our day. And if you disagree, then essentially you are advocating discrimination and hatred against uh, Many of God's children, so there wasn't a lot of room of compromise. Wow!
0: So, if you could, you, you uh, before we w- uh, start recording, you commented on my uniform, um, and you said you need to get one for the IRD, which I fully support, by the way. Uh, what if you could, if you were, uh, if God had raised Mark Thule to be a Salvationist and not a United Methodist, um, what if you had just like you're wearing a uniform right now? And, but you know, have all this experience that you have in this fight for the last 40 years. Um, what would you say the army? Like that, that basically there's a proposal on the table. Um, it's not formal and the way our governance works and our polity works, it's a little different. But there's essentially a proposal on the table that mirrors the local option or the one church plan. Uh, could you speak into the Salvation Army?
2: Yes. Uh, examine recent uh, church history and uh, note that everywhere a church has compromised on sexuality in America, in Europe, Australia, New Zealand, the consequences have always been calamitous. They have always resulted in schism. They have always resulted in accelerated membership decline. Only declining churches have compromised their Teaching wow. and sexuality. And in every case, when they made that choice, the decline accelerated. So wow. that measure is often sold as a means for opening the doors further and for wider inclusion, but the impact is always the direct opposite. Shrinking membership, older membership, less diverse membership.
0: Mm. My fear is just that that's um that we're to this point where uh, it's either got to be I think uh, for the for those s- segments of the army that hold this view um, there's got have to be discipline um it has to be enforcement and I, I it, here I am it's like saying the word enforcement it sounds so mean sounds so rough or there's got to be ha- separation and That's not something I say with any joy, but I'm afraid we're to that point. Um, and I I think many people who might hear me saying that will think, Oh, Andy's a hothead. He's trying to push us too quickly. But I think hearing from you has helped us see, helped me see that we're on a similar track as other denominations. And, and often in the Salvation Army, we, we always think the army way is the best way. So maybe, maybe we think we're the ones who can do it right. We're the ones who can figure it out. Like we always have our version of things. But um, I, I appreciate you helping us think through this and think through and, and, and learn from Methodism. Um, what, what else is there from the IRD that uh, might be beneficial to our listeners? What would you, is there anything you'd like to tell them about? Resource-wise?
2: Well, uh, we're very devoted to uh, reforming uh, how Christians, especially evangelicals, do political theology in America. I think we're in a very bad situation right now. Evangelicalism is a, I would say, largely a modern American cultural movement with many strengths and very entrepreneurial, and thank God for it. But because of the breakdown in denominational loyalties and knowledge, we have very evangelicalism has very little connection or not enough connection to the historic teachings of the church and many of the best parts of our respective traditions, Anglican, Mm -hmm. Calvinist, Methodist, Lutheran, and et cetera. So when it comes to doing political theology, uh, some great teachings in our history that we have lost sight of. And so many contemporary Christians just assume that we have to think it up all on our own. And that leaves (laughs) us... uh, and kind of a mess all over the place, whether you're on the political right or left or in between. So I hope that we could help rediscover the great resources of our respective traditions that can get us to a better place.
0: Yeah. And you, have a, you host like a, a YouTube sort of podcast or sorts, So you interview political theologians. Like you introduced me to several people like Bruce Ashford, uh, other people. T- talk about some of those people that are these key voices that um, you think that uh, could benefit our audience. it's always
2: looking for interesting uh, thinkers who are addressing these issues of uh, political theology. So for example, uh, most recently I interviewed uh, the historian uh, Alan Gelzo at Princeton University, who's uh, ordained in the Episcopal Church, but uh, conservative. And uh, he was, uh, maybe it's kind of an arcane point, but I found it fascinating that many conservatives admire the British statesman uh, Edmund Burke, and justly so, uh, a great uh, statesman in his own right. But uh, Delzo argued that Burke was a um, quote-unquote a romanticist who was committed to the specific time and place of his own British culture in contrast with the founding fathers of the United States who uh, founded our country based on their understanding of natural law and universal principles with application to all peoples everywhere and not just to Americans or to British Protestants. So he thought those were two Contrasting perspectives: the Burkean romanticist perspective versus the founding fathers, Abraham Lincoln, the Declaration of Independence, the Gettysburg Address, making universal affirmations about the rights, dignity, and duty of all peoples everywhere. So, and he said that the founding fathers' perspective obviously was rooted in the universality of the Christian gospel. So, I thought that was perhaps an obvious point, but also a profound point.
0: Yeah. I well in interesting I I found kind of like intellectual resources for even thinking about same-sex marriage in in the United States. I found myself kind of kind of dry when um you know before fell and like in in the years leading up to Obergefell and um but I found people like and now he's in the news now m- more uh, like Ryan T Anderson, Robert George uh, in their natural law perspective, to be really helpful, but I found it interesting too that you you are kind of crying, uh, calling out too for there to be non natural law voices as well. Um, so I think, that, tell me about that. Like, what is there a danger in the the natural law perspective?
2: Well, I don't think I have pointed out uh, any dangers uh, specifically. Okay, but there are others of uh, Protestants who would. Uh, caution us not rejecting natural law in most cases but uh, making the point that scripture is primary so there is is a part of Protestantism that's a little uh, suspicious or wary of what Roman Catholics do with natural law apart from scripture but I think it's safe to say all of the major Protestant reformers, Luther and Calvin and later Wesley uh, 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 affirm natural law
0: right Well, I'd love to keep going here longer. I only asked for so much time with you, but I appreciate your time. And uh, where can people find you and uh, these resources you've mentioned? Is there a good place, good places online where they can follow you?
2: Check out our website, of course, uh, theird.org, T-H-E-I-R-D.org, and that will link you to our daily uh, blog called Juicy Ecumenism with latest updates on what's happening uh, in Christianity, but also our foreign policy journal providence magazine is linked there as well great
0: well thanks so much for your time mark we appreciate you and um, appreciate the work that you're doing for the kingdom in the jungle of washington dc
2: thank you andrew i appreciate uh, all of your work and it's good to connect after mostly just interacting uh, electronically
0: over the years yeah absolutely god bless you
1: If you'd like to learn more about the Salvation Army of Tampa, check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at SalArmyTampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.